Welcome to You've Gotta Taste This, the podcast where food people tell you about recipes that you've simply got to taste. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, and I've been writing about food for almost 20 years. I love to cook, and even more, I love to talk about cooking. So let's get started. My guest today is Felicity Spector, who I've been following on Instagram forever. She's a London-based journalist, but she's also an incredible cook who posts the most delicious recipes on Instagram. And this is the assignment she gave me. Hi Adam, this is Felicity Spector from London, and you've really got to taste this. It is a Makovi roulette, which is a Ukrainian braided bread with a beautiful poppy seed paste inside, a bit like a babka, uh, from a recipe by Olya Hercules. I think you're really going to love it. So here's my conversation with Felicity Spector all about the Makovi roulette, the poppy seed roll. Um, by Olia Hercules that I made this past weekend, and it was a delicious treat. But you'll hear all about that in our conversation. So here we go. Well, Felicity, I am so excited to finally talk to you. It's been a long time of following each other on social media. So thank you for doing my podcast. Oh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. I mean, I, I hope one day that I'll be able to come to LA and meet you properly, but this is almost <laughs> as good. <laughs> well, I, I'm an Anglophile. Is that the right word? Um, I'm, I'm obsessed with British culture. I love British cookbook authors. And um, I just think the whole, you know, everyone from Nigel's, Nigel Slater and um, Nigella Lawson, anyone named Nigel, I've been interested in. So I'm very giddy to get to talk to you. Um, how are things over there? What did you eat today so far? Well, I've just been actually to a dinner um, that was organized by um, a nut milk and juice company, I guess, called Plenish. And they, they organized it. My friend, um, Ravneet Gill, who uh, is a host on the children's version of Bake Off and okay. also a pastry chef. Uh, she had done a, um, a collaboration with them ages ago to do a dessert, like a rice pudding made with um, oat milk. So anyway, mm. she came along uh, to the dinner and we had the we had the dessert and uh, lots of other very nice vegetarian food. So that was uh, lovely. That sounds great. So this is a post, we're in different time zones. So this is a post dinner party conversation. So I, I, hope you, I hope you've had some champagne or some uh, intoxicants to get you really no, going. No, actually, this... total. So this, this mint tea is about as exciting <laughs> as it gets. <laughs> okay. Well, let's jump, let's jump right into it. So this podcast is uh, You've Got to Taste This, and I asked you to send me a recipe that I had to taste. And you sent me um, a Ukrainian poppy seed and pecan Easter bread recipe from Olia Hercules. And before I get to what my experience was like making it, but spoiler alert, I loved eating it. Um, can you tell me why you chose this? Well, I mean, Olia is an amazing uh, chef and cookbook writer. Um, she's a good friend. And her and her family have, like every Ukrainian, have been through like a really, really tough time and uh, are still facing that. Uh, and I, I really want to amplify those uh, her voice and, and the voice of other Ukrainians and I I've myself have traveled to Ukraine a few times um, taking in um, some aid supplies and help, just generally trying to um, kind of you know help help people in the best way that I can um, and also as part of that I've been learning new Ukrainian recipes my, my grandparents came from uh, Dnipro I never met them because sadly they passed away before I was born but I've always been very interested. And I used to work in that part of the world um, many years ago. Uh, I'm okay. quite old now. But yes, I, I, I really want, was enjoying finding out more about Ukrainian cooking through people like Olya. And I've always loved poppy seed bread. It's quite hard to find in this country. Uh, I don't know why. I found it in New York and places, but often mm. in Jewish bakeries, you can get these things. But it's a very special flavor. And I think if people haven't tried it before, it sounds weird. Like, why would I want to make poppy seeds into a paste? Yeah. It is really delicious. So I want to kind of spread the 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 word about the the fantasticness of poppy seeds to everybody as much as possible. Well, it's so funny. I mean, well, first of all, that, that you just opened up so many doorways of conversation. I, I want to ask you so many things. Um, but in terms of poppy seeds, it was funny. I tweeted that every time I have a recipe with poppy seeds, I forget that I already have like a stash of poppy seeds. So now my my pantry is filled with containers of poppy seeds but what was so cool about this recipe was that you simmer them in milk and then you blend them with pecans and um, sugar and so that paste 
really had a unique flavor to it. I mean, I can't say that I've ever tasted anything quite like it. And I grew up going to Jewish bakeries and I've, I've grown up having like lemon poppy seed cake and I've grown up having like lemon poppy seed muffins or poppy seed bagel. But there was something about this bread that took it to a different level. And I was, I'm wondering, uh, being the wonderful writer that you are, are there, what, what words would you use to describe what poppy seed tastes like? in its ultimate form. It is a bit like a frangipan, isn't it? And everyone loves yes. it. I am obsessed with frangipan. So it's got that very sort of rich, almost nutty flavour. But poppy seeds can be quite bitter. Mm-hmm. So the reason for simmering them in the milk, or sometimes you can soak them in water, and most recipes call for them to be uh, blended in some way. So sometimes you grind them in a coffee grinder or a spice grinder before you cook them. Mm-hmm. And Olia's one is slightly easier for people who don't have like a special spice grinder because you can just do it in a regular um, food processor. Mm-hmm. And that's why she's very good, because she knows the kind of stuff people have at home and that they're not going to rush out and buy special equipment just to make one thing. So she's very good at adapting it to what people will already have, you know, hopefully if they've got a reasonable sort of uh, amount of cooking implements in their kitchen. Mm-hmm. But it has, so you take away that bitterness, so you're left with a very sort of rich, sort of almost marzipan-like, but it's a bit mm-hmm. earthier because yes. poppy seeds are quite sort of intense and i have heard of people being stopped uh, and sort of uh, failing drug tests because they eat <laughs> poppy seed cake so you probably yeah. have to be careful not to get in the car straight away after eating a whole big slice <laughs> of that bread <laughs> i've heard there there's that i think i mean i've heard i remember there was an episode of seinfeld where i think elaine uh fails a drug test because she's been eating poppy seed muffins so that's that's a real thing um well you know so this recipe what i mean for people who haven't made it yet or don't even know what i'm talking about uh, is basically, I guess it's a cousin to babka, right? I mean, it's sort of a dough. So you make a dough and it had butter in the dough. I'm trying to remember what went, went into the dough. I have it right here. Um, it was yeast, eggs, flour. There was no butter in the dough, but it was a really smooth dough. Um, and then you roll it out and you dot it with this poppy seed paste that's mixed with apples. And this recipe is not really for the faint of heart in terms of the actions involved in making it. Cause, cause first of all, you're rolling out a dough that's almost like a bread dough um, into a big rectangle, which is not so easy to do. And then you're slathering on this poppy seed paste and then you're rolling it up into like a roll and then you're twisting it like a snail. And then you're, Oh no, I'm sorry. You roll it up. Like you roll it up. Then you slice it in half vertically. Then you roll part of it into a snail and then the other part you wrap around it. So there's a lot going on here, but I pulled it all off. And so I put it into my oven and I had a friend over and when I took it out of the oven, it looked like, like a mountain of pastry. I mean, it was huge and it was incredible. So do you make this often or is this like a special occasion thing? Well, it would be probably a special occasion and you can obviously divide it into half and make two smaller ones, Um, but it's like a magnificent thing. Um, yes. There's a similar uh, bread called a zavidanets, which is also a poppy seed, like a braided babka type thing. And it's, again, a thing that people often make at Christmas time or mm. Easter so that it's a celebration bread. And it's the, the round shape is also another like a, a shape that people it's a similar in Jewish bread that you make this mm-hmm. sort of round one that's uh, more of a sort of sharing on a big platter. Yes. And people break bits off and it's like a, a really nice you know, you can imagine a whole family sort of tucking into this thing. When you make it just for yourself, it's quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a couple of friends come over. We weren't sure. I wasn't sure if it was a dessert or if it was an appetizer or if it was just like a bread to have on the table with dinner. I ultimately served it as like a in-between dinner and dessert course, just sort of like post-dinner, pre-dessert. And I think that worked out pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sweet because of the apple and stuff. And you can also... You know, you can have it for breakfast, you can toast it up and things like that. And there's there's a similar, there's a bread called um, kolach, which, um, or kolach, which is a bit like um, a challah bread, which mm-hmm. Olia has in her current book, uh, Home Food. She's written four now. Yes. Uh, the one I gave you, I think, was from Summer Kitchens. But this one is in um, Home Food and uh, it's got pumpkin uh, puree in the dough. So it comes wow. out this really cool kind of yellowy orange color. And again, mm. you plait that into a sort of round shape and you put seeds on the top. And it's also another really delicious. And Olia served it once at one of her supper clubs with ice cream on the top uh, which, with fruit kind of compote on the side. And that, that was also really nice as a dessert. So they're quite adaptable, I think. 
Oh, or maybe even like a pan Purdue or like a French toast oh, with yeah. it or something. That would be good. So, okay, I'm getting the sense. So, you know, Olia in real life. I just know her from her work. So I'm, I'm a fan of hers too. So in terms of what's going on in Ukraine and your friendship with her and now her family and you going, I mean, can you talk about the, the buildup to this and then your involvement in going there and, and how you've been experiencing this uh, in terms of your job and your relationship to Olia and food and all of that? So, I mean, I really, Olia has been absolutely incredible. I mean, she is doing so much to kind of promote uh, helping charities and her her brother is in the army in Kiev and her dad is now back in Mykolaiv helping um, with a, a charity that his, he and his friends have set up to take supplies to uh, communities and troops on the front line in uh, Kherson district where she comes from. And she has felt pulled in so many directions because you want to be constantly sort of explaining to people what's happening and being there as a resource, but that's extremely ex exhausting, especially when you have family there yourself. But she set up with another friend, uh, Alyssa Timoshkina, um, a charity called Cook for Ukraine, which you might have heard of. And that has raised oh well over a million and a half pounds through people cooking the Ukrainian dinners and restaurants, taking part, all sorts of different activities that people could do. Um, and that's been an absolutely incredible achievement. Um, mm. But as well as that, she's obviously got, you know, her own activism and, and writing and um, she's also done a book and she's got a family. So, you know, I don't know how she, um, you know, she, it's a very, you know, exhausting time, but she has a very strong family, which has been a real rock for her. But mm -hmm. anything I think that, that we can do to help someone like that to, you know, get more uh, traction for what they're doing and, um, and support them and you know everything is is really important so mm -hmm. trying to be listening to what people want you to do and responding in a kind of helpful and supportive way and then i um i'd read about a bakery in um kiev called um, bakehouse which i think i'd heard of before somehow i think somebody i knew had gone there um before the war and this bakery was part of a group called good wine and um their warehouse was bombed by the russians it's just outside uh, kiev near Irpin, you might have heard of Irpin where they had that bridge that was destroyed and loads of people were killed there. It's, 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 I've been to the place, it's so very shocking to see. Mm -hmm. um, this warehouse was full of wine and so the whole lot went up in a huge fire and the bakery lost loads of their equipment and ingredients that they'd had stored there. And I thought, well, I know lots of people in the baking industry who might have equipment that's spare, that's like that's slightly secondhand, but works perfectly well or stuff that they're just not using. So I asked around and I'd asked the bakery what they needed and Anna, who is the manager, had given me a list and straight away people were just incredible. Like, yep, sure, what do you need? Hmm. So I had offers of all this professional bakery equipment and I thought, how how do we get this to Kiev? And then I found a charity um, called Sunflower, Ukraine Sunflower Aid, and they specialise, they have vans and people volunteer to drive them. And they take stuff out. So they'd been taking things to an orphanage. They'd taken stuff to a hospital. And they were like, sure, you know, tell us how much it weighs. We'll tell you how many vans and then we will sort it. So I went with them in August and uh, it was a four day drive all the way from London to Kiev. And it was they were amazing guys. They and they two of them go almost every month and um, they've been helping an orphanage in Lviv and various other places. And they were just so, you know, they were just ready to help. They didn't ask any and you know they didn't need anything in return they were just like when do you need us you know here we are and it, people like that mm. is it just really restores your faith really in humanity and that the people are just um so happy to help without wanting anything in, in return it's it was it was great and then we took all the, the the equipment out there um and the bakery were so nice and they they make bread for the um the army they call them volunteer loaves and they've now made well over 100,000 of these loaves. And um, I've now seen that somebody turns up in a van and picks up, you know, the bags of bread and then they drive it off to wherever they need to distribute it. Um, and they give it to, you know, all these, the guys who are defending the country. And it's it's just lots of businesses I then discovered are doing this. So mm. loads of places you go, um, they'll be doing a special product or they'll be giving a proportion of their money and, and this is in a country which is already everything is very challenged and people are, are living sort of day to day. But the first thought is, how can I help the armed forces or, and, and the refugees and the people who've lost their homes? 
so you know again it's I mean not everyone's an angel but it's it's people are really united and and are trying their best to help each other and in terms of I mean I think you're being self-effacing here because you I mean you brought this all together yourself too so uh, or you you brought you were in the van with everybody else too so what was that like for you driving into Kiev and uh, or Kiev and were you nervous were you invigorated were I mean what, what did it feel like I mean I have the guys had been they hadn't actually one of them had been to Kiev before but they mostly drove to Lviv which is um, in the west and this was like another day of driving but I guess we were quite fortunate because we did that trip in the summer when it was fairly quiet in Kiev there wasn't many um now they've started bombing it a lot but in 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 the summer back in the summer it was relatively calm and um I wouldn't say normal because there's lots of roadblocks and there's um it's under martial law so there's lots of rules about what you can and can't do quite rightly um but as long as you know what those are and you respect that then it's absolutely fine and there's a curfew and things like that but it was quite late at night and we we were staying quite centrally so you know we were quite surprised we're like oh there are places open I mean like people don't you know the 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 situation is very different in different cities and I've now traveled to quite a lot of I mean most parts of Ukraine actually and some of the places are very badly damaged and there's not much there and the infrastructure is really hit somewhere like Kharkiv for example is uh there's a lot of bomb damage there and a lot of shops and businesses in the center are closed or boarded up because it's not very safe or it hasn't been very safe to walk around so people don't particularly want to go out and just go for a walk or something it's, it wouldn't be right um but there are still places that function and there are um amazing you know like there's like a cafe selling avocado toast and <laughs> macchiato and you're like how and they're like we're here for you know there are people who need us and people need to eat and we need yeah. the jobs um so we're going to try our best to keep some things going within you know within reason um and there's amazing companies like the train company the ukrainian railways i've traveled a lot by train because I, I don't drive myself and they have these amazing night trains which will go all over the country and everything runs on time, they're clean, they're, uh, a lady brings around cups of tea. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. And, wow. you know, even though there, there were missile attacks, they're like, nope, we're running on time, nothing's late, <laughs> everything's on schedule. And you're like, this is amazing. And such an amazing um, determination that the, the, the country that is, you know, under such, in, in such a difficult time, but they've got these key resources which they know people need like the railways like uh the people who go out and try and mend the power stations after they've been bombed and put the, the electricity lines back up you can see these guys you know it's quite dangerous for them but they're just there and the, you know the emergency services and the people sweeping the streets and taking the litter mm-hmm. and stuff like that you know they're trying to keep things from you know as, as far as they can uh from you know turning even worse than you know it's, it's incredibly difficult for a lot of people you know and a lot of people have lost you know loved ones and so on so it's not like oh everything's fine in you know in Kiev. so therefore you know you, you have to be very respectful of, of the kind of things that a lot of people have lost their homes and have had mm-hmm. to you know live in exile I've, i stayed with friends in Kiev who came from Kharkiv in march and they you know they just basically had to grab everything they could and put it in a car and leave um wow. It was it was very dangerous at the time to even drive around the city, and but you know they didn't have a lot of option, um, and they're now living in the capital. And they mm. say, oh no, we're 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 lucky because we can work. You know, we have our jobs. They work uh, from home, so it didn't affect their work. But a lot of you know, but and you think, God, you know, you're living in this. There was you know one of the missiles that fell on New Year's Eve was in in their street. The whole yeah. house shook from the impact. Wow. Yeah, but they're like, well, you know. We toasted the new year a bit early, maybe. You can't go out late at night. Nobody wants to party when, you know, when there's Missiles a war going, are going on. Yeah. Yeah, they I mean, just make the best of it. It's interesting to hear you talk about it because it's like, it makes me realize when you read the newspaper and you're reading about this, there's almost like a distance that you feel or I feel when I'm reading it, like, oh, this is happening so far away. And, I, you know, but but it's it's kind of a cool, like, project, I feel like in a weird way, like, this podcast, like you sending me this recipe and then me making this food that sort of connects me to this culture and not just me, but anybody who is making uh, Ukrainian recipes now and buying Olia's books. And, um, you know, there's something that's humanizing and kind of 
bridges that gap between, you know, what feels like just something you see on the news to like the humanity that we all feel. Um, and I'm curious, I mean, I think in terms of food being taken seriously in the context of war, I mean, it feels like there's the, there's obviously the need to survive like food as survival, but then there's also food as keeping a culture, keeping culture alive and keeping, you know, your, your sense of identity. And so, I mean, I, I, there's so much, so many layers, I guess I'm trying to say to the, the recipe that you chose. Um, but, but I'm curious in terms of your own cooking, were you cooking a lot of Ukrainian food before this war began, or is this more of a new thing for you? I mean, I used to make some dishes, but because, I mean, I, I really like borscht, for example. Mm -hmm. I've always really enjoyed that. It's been something I've I made. I love it too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked. So I worked in Moscow in um in our office in Moscow in 1990, 91. So I remember going to Ukraine in 1991 with a reporting team on the uh, independence and um. You know, I found this old picture of myself aged about, I look about 12 in the picture, but anyway, <laughs> just a bit older than that. But yeah, I remember going there then and I bought this book back and it was like Soviet recipes or something, but it had this Ukrainian borscht in it. Mm. So, and I used to make that sometimes. It took ages because there were so many vegetables to cut up and you've got covered in beetroot and now I wear right. these gloves. Obviously, but then <laughs> it was just like, you, had, you looked like you sort of had a massacre in the kitchen. You know, right, days totally. While you scrubbed all the beetroot off everything. But it was one of my favourite um, things to make with the sour cream and dill and mm -hmm. everything, which, you know, it just, it, you can't really go wrong. Um, but yeah, I've, I did make a few things, but I didn't ever really do any of the baking um, because I I never, I, you know, it looks a bit intimidating to make this yeasted thing. And, you know, yes. oh my God, this is going to be really hard. But actually, um now that, especially when you've when I've tried them and gone to you know my, my friend uh, well Olia's one of Olia's best friends Katria who comes from the same town as Olia in um, in Kherson region um, Kachovka which sadly is still occupied by the Russians so Katria left there in April and moved to Lviv in the west of Ukraine and I've been to visit her I took her a copy of Olia's book mm. um, she has a recipe in there and the and one of the she is a baker. And one of the, the other recipes for poppy seed roll is, is hers. Mm. And um, she now works at a small bakery in Lviv, um, a really lovely little micro bakery. Um, and her recipes, are, watching her cook, I've, I've been lucky enough to, you know, she's made lunch and stuff. And, I've, and I did a little baking workshop with her. And it's just second nature. And she makes these beautiful sort of little pirishki, they're called, little pies. And the dough looks impossibly soft. You think, oh, it's never going to stick together. And she somehow, you know, she, there's just the way she pats it into her hands and then sort of gently puts it in the frying pan and so on. And it's mm -hmm. just, you know, it's it's a it's a joy to watch that kind of thing. And you realise that it's not anything complicated, that it's just people making it at home. And maybe they don't measure everything because they're used to it. So it's a little bit difficult to translate sometimes because you don't really, if you haven't had it, up you don't really know what it's meant to look like but Katria for example has a video um Patreon because she wants to help supplement her income because obviously she had to leave everything behind in her in her home when she had to leave and um so you can subscribe to it and pay it whatever you want really um but she does these wonderful videos showing how to make these things and she has such a lovely voice it, it's really mm. peaceful and restful to listen to um and so then you get more of an idea. So it's much more, um, I guess, of an immersive experience learning how mm -hmm. to make things. And I've really enjoyed, I've made quite a lot of her, I've tried to make as many as possible of her recipes as well, because, you know, I'd like to support what she's doing. But also it's really fun to, to learn these completely new things. Yes. I mean, I felt that way when I was making this bread that if you hadn't assigned me this bread, I would never have thought to make it. But now that I've made it, I'm like, oh, I'm so happy that I had that experience. Um, but before we get too far down this road, I did want to ask you, I mean, maybe to pull the camera back a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. And and because um, I know that journalism is, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, actually, I don't know that much in terms of the balance between food and journalism and what you do. But can you talk a little bit about your career and and how food has worked its way into it? Yeah, I mean, my career, I mean, I've worked, I, I'm a, I work for a TV news company. I can't say which one, um, but I, so I've worked there only because I can't really link it to the food thing. They, they'd like me to keep it separate. So I, I, okay. I've been there since 1989. So okay. I joined, yeah, long, I was, I, so I, I studied at Oxford University. Mm -hmm. um, my undergraduate I've heard of it. 
I was student union president for a year, so that's like okay. a sabbatical job. And I was going to go to Harvard to do a master's, uh, wow. a PhD in uh, Russian and uh, East European studies, because uh, I used to specialize in Russian, uh, Russian history and politics. And instead, I got offered this job at the TV news station and then um, just went there. And then I went to Eastern Europe a lot. And I was based in Moscow and then traveled around at first Eastern Europe then Western Europe. But um, I went to Harvard and did a degree in mas a master's in American politics. And then I did lots of stuff around the American elections, which is a lot more fun than Eastern <laughs> Europe. <laughs> you, was, that, was, was that your first time uh, living in America when you came to Harvard? Was that the first time you'd lived here? Yeah, I I'd been there on holiday because I had a friend who went to Harvard straight after we finished at Oxford. And so I went, I'd been to visit her a few, and then she stayed. She ended up working for the IMF. Um, yeah. And then she went to MIT. She's like, her her husband won the Nobel Prize for economics. <laughs> so they're quite a power couple. Underachiever. <laughs> yeah. Wow. How do you beat I that? I feel I've done nothing with my life whenever I go see them. <laughs> anyway, they're very nice. But yeah, so she was at MIT and like directed this research institute into sort of solving poverty or whatever. <laughs> usual. Um, so she's quite high flying, but yeah, I used to go and visit them, and um, and they lived in uh, in DC for a while, and then in Boston, um, and then I just really enjoyed going there a lot. So I I, I had originally planned to go to Harvard, and then um, managed luckily to get a Fulbright scholarship um, to oh pay goodness. for it. So I did right. the mid career master's degree. Um, so thank you, Fulbright. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot to ask about this because um, I'll just say I did a summer. I went to college at Emory University in Atlanta, which is they they called it the Harvard of the South, but I think a lot of schools probably call themselves the Harvard of something or the other. But I um, did a summer program at Oxford, which was so fun. I got to go there for the summer, and I took a class on Shakespeare, and we went to the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford and saw their productions. Um, and I took a class on modern British theater. But I remember vividly at the time, and I don't know if this was like just the the, the stereotype, but like British food at that time had a really bad reputation. And I remember we had we got like the cafeteria food for lunch in the, the dorm that we were staying in at Oxford. And I remember finding it so repulsive at the time that I would go to the Starbucks on the corner outside <laughs> and get like an egg, like a egg salad sandwich, like wrapped in cellophane. Um, but what's so funny is that I feel like the reputation of British food over the past 20 years has gone from like being like a joke of like, oh God, you know, don't eat the food there to like, it's one of the most sought after desirable places to vacation. So have you witnessed that firsthand? And what was that like? Oh, completely. I mean, I grew up in the 1970s okay. when, I mean, my God, you know, British food. I mean, we didn't really go out to eat my family, but once or twice we might go out for a special. And the starter would be either a glass of orange juice <laughs> or, um, half a grapefruit with like a maraschino cherry yes, and that yes. was like the luxury starter <laughs> and and you know and then you'd get everything was brown and so on and like there was no herbs I'd never even heard of olive oil like I remember like right. the first time I'd ever even had like a sun-dried tomato and I was about 23 and it was in some <laughs> fancy restaurant in London I was like what what this is amazing <laughs> my god you know it was just well then Britain I think realized that what is valuable about British society is the diversity here and that mm -hmm. we have so many cultures it's 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 really exciting and that all these cultures have like much better food than the original british food like everything <laughs> is full of flavor and it's like really vibrant and there's loads of different um you know it's not expensive people use a lot of different ingredients that you could find anywhere and so on so that, that this was something to actually embrace mm -hmm. and as soon as this happened and people sort of realized that um the, one of the strongest points about British culture generally is the fact that we have so many different cultures living, living here and it really enriches everybody else. The food side of that is, is what I think has helped British food become like transformed from what it mm -hmm. was back in the 70s. That gone are the kind of boiled boiled vegetables for six hours and you know some yes. random grayish looking meat and that, that's your lot the oliver twist uh special or whatever <laughs> i mean um, to be fair my 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 late i mean my, my late mum was, was was a good cook but she didn't mm -hmm. do much she when i was about six or seven my mum got elected to the city council and it meant she had lots of evening meetings so my dad, which was quite rare, I mean, good for him, you know, in the 70s, not many men did any cooking. He sort of stepped up, but he mm -hmm. literally had no idea. You know, he just sort of 
boiled some veg and put it in the pressure <laughs> cooker or something and like with the cold meat left over from like two days ago and, right. and you, you just ate it I mean in those days nobody complained or expected to have anything else it was like all right okay dinner <laughs> great you know, sort of random things from the fridge with some grated cheese on it lovely <laughs> Well, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of two fat ladies. I watch that oh, yes. all, all the time on YouTube, but I mean, I feel like they're sort of the transitional moment where like it was starting to become more um, gourmet, the food, but it's still pretty uh, like, you know, boiled this and potted that. And I feel like when I look at someone like Nigel Slater or that generation, I mean, it was that sort of the, the later generation of sort of the British food writers who is sort of opening up British food minds to a new way of cooking and I think because people like Nigel and and even you know I mean lots of these sort of cookbook writers who've been really seminal Nigella Lawson Jamie Oliver all these people I think mm -hmm. they what they did was that they helped people who were cooking at home mm -hmm. not be intimidated by the thought of producing some kind of restaurant quality thing that this was very much something which was just what you have in your cupboard already, or you just maybe have to buy one or two extra things for a special, you know, if you're going to the shops anyway, then, you know, get these three things and it's not expensive. It's not something which you have to save up for because, mm -hmm. you know, it's all quite, um, I'd say humble, but it's, and it's achievable is the main thing. And it doesn't, it's not going to take you all afternoon. You don't have to have special equipment, you know, right. and it's something which is, and because they are very, rigorous about testing the recipes and um and they i'm sure they have recipe testers who do it in home ovens as well um but it is something which is you know you know it's going to work you know you're not going to invest all this time and effort and then the wretched thing doesn't come out like it's supposed to <laughs> and even if you have doubts like sometimes i think like, really okay oh my right. god and then it's like of course it's going to work like when does this never you know and it, that, that i think gives you confidence to make Another thing, you know, sometimes you buy a cookbook and if one thing you make out of the cookbook goes wrong, you're kind of really reluctant to ever look at it again. Um, but I think with, with people like that, because the way they work as well is that they do, they really test things and they do really make sure that, you know, before they publish something that it's, it's you know, it's going to be reliable. You then have a lot of confidence in, in, in it to explore other things that you might not have made because you think, well, I'll give this a go, you know, see what it's like. <laughs> well, it's also it's interesting. Nice I, I, I feel like there's also a literary quality to so many British food writers. I mean, when, whenever Nigella Lawson speaks on television, I feel like I'm reading like a romance novel or something. It's like very sumptuous language. And then you know, everyone from like Simon Hopkinson to, uh, and then Nigel Slater, but like they all, there's like a literary thing. And it almost makes me think about like some connection between it formerly being thought of as lowbrow to be in the kitchen and then the elevation of the kitchen is, is actually some, something sophisticated to aspire to, or just something about the way culture thinks of cooking now, the way they thought of it versus how they thought of it like 30 years ago. Um, seems like that has shifted too, in some ways. I mean, I know, I know there's a luxury to it. And I know that, that it's like, you know, for a lot of people, they have, they just have to put food on the table for their yes. family and it's, it's difficult. But we then, you know, we also like people like Jack Munro, um, who is a writer, um amazing writer who writes about people who are on you know from you know struggling with food poverty or you know even you know people who have to shop from food banks and they really don't have anything to spare and they can't afford to buy anything fancy she's done a cookbook about tin cans she's done a mm. cookbook about you know really quick and easy using store cupboard stuff that's going to last and that people will be able to you know keep you know even if they don't have a freezer and so like it's it's she understands where people mm -hmm. are coming from who are in low-income families and the kind of thing which you know will still be nutritious and will be easy for them to make with a family when they've got you know many other pressures on their time and so on so I think people are trying to also democratize it and not make it into this very mm -hmm. elitist thing that you you can only be a cook if you you can buy the kind of fanciest pistachio nuts and you know the special butter that's like cultured or whatever and because some food writing can be a bit sort of you know oh, you yeah. know it's like oh why would anyone not buy organic or something you know it's terrible it's like there's a lot of people who are grounded in a lot more realism which i think is is great because you don't want to kind of exclude the majority of people yes. from food and, and try and sort of speak down to them or sort of you know sort of imply that they're not sort of 
worthy of being able to cook recipes because they haven't got organic produce all over their cupboard. Totally. So I think that's a really important thing which people have embraced and along with trying to allow in a diversity of voices and mm -hmm. make sure that it's not just like the same people who dominate every other industry. Well, it feels like um, we see this um, play out on the Great British Baking Show um, because it's, lit it's literally like people from all over the country brought together under a tent and they're all working normal jobs, but they're all show showcasing their talent. And then you have a very posh woman <laughs> um, sort of lording over them, <laughs> but, but, but they're also sort of poking fun at her. I feel like you're seeing all those dynamics play out on that show a little bit. I mean, I think a sense of humor is like the most important thing you can have sometimes because we all know what it's like when people are like super earnest and take themselves too seriously. And it's like, yeah. it's a plate of food. My God, you yeah. know, it's not like well right. So, you know, sometimes you just have to relax and just make the make the cake. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to change the world. Yes. But, you know. <laughs> so when I, I have to ask you, I, I kind of skipped over this, but when you came to America and were living in America, what did you think of the food in America? And what did you like and what didn't you like? Well, I'd always had this obsession with America. I don't know why. Like ever since I was young, mm -hmm. I remember my brother buying me this American phrase book, and like I learned all the words, like you know, sidewalk and station wagon. And people who are, used to ask me to make an American, to do an American accent and things at school and things. Let's hear you do it. Come on. All right, I'm not very good. I'm not going to do it for you now. <laughs> <laughs> my acting skills are not. Let's okay. just say. Uh, I won't give up the day job, but no, but I was always upset and I, I was always really wanted to visit uh, America and I finally got to go. I think it was, a, I was about 20 or something. It was after university and um, I went with my dad and it was his 70th birthday. Mm -hmm. And so my mum had some big council, like two day conference that she was going to. So she said, well, why don't you take, why don't you go to America? Like you two really want to go to New York. I don't really want to go to New York. You go. So we we just had the most amazing time because I think it was two dollars to the pound. It was like everything was like super cheap. We were like, this is great. And now it's like one dollar to the pound. So oh, everything okay. was almost half price. <laughs> and we were so excited. And my dad was like overjoyed to see all these Jewish places because there aren't that many in England mm -hmm. and not to the same extent. And he he was like a big Woody Allen fan. So he wanted uh -huh. to go to all the the places that featured, I think, the Carnegie Deli or somewhere. Oh, there was yeah, like a of course. And, yeah. Um, that's in we um, Broadway, to... Broadway, Danny Rose. That's where all the comedians sit around that's the table. Right, that's right. And my, my dad loved that place too. And it sadly closed, but we used to go there before we'd see like a Broadway show or something. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And the sandwiches were like a mile oh high. Oh my God, like, yeah. Stacked. Okay. yeah. You weren't allowed <laughs> to share them where you had to, you, you had to just buy one and like, just get on with it. <laughs> it yeah, like, exactly. Okay. You had to unhinge your jaw <laughs> to eat it. Yes. Um, what, what, so you had a great first visit, it sounds like. Yeah, and it was just everything that I, I had dreamed of New York. So I just, we just loved it. But like, my dad hardly wanted to go to bed because we might miss something. And I was like, it'll still be there in the morning. You know, <laughs> it was, but we just, you know, it was just the nicest time. And then I went back, I tried to go every year, basically. And I, I was obsessed with bagels. I used to fill my suitcase with bagels and with babkas mm -hmm. from uh, Zabar's and mm -hmm. uh, from this shop in the Chelsea market and I'd like literally bring back like half of New York's baked goods and cram them into my freezer and I remember going to San Francisco and visiting um, one of the bakeries that did this these sourdough loaves it wasn't Tartine it was I think the Noe Valley Bakery mm -hmm. and then it was like carting back giant loaves of double raisin sourdough and so on I mean I I don't even know whether you're allowed to bring bread back but nobody ever stopped me so I guess I guess it was okay in those days it was probably like a bigger deal then than, than now where you can probably just go on the internet and get anything you want shipped to you but back yeah, then like you'd yeah. be smuggling uh things back and forth uh, so when you lived in Boston did did you um did it what's the word like did the the bloom go off the rose or did you start did america stop being so wonderful or did you love it all the time the whole time well so the, the I, I mean i was very fortunate to have this fulbright scholarship but it was only about after i paid my rent i think i was left with about ten dollars a day mm. to live on so i used to buy like one bagel and have half in the morning and then the rest of the other like it was really frugal then I got this reputation for knowing where all the free food was. So the Kennedy School, I was studying at the Kennedy School, I did uh, political uh, communications. They would sometimes have these executive meetings. And so all these like city mayors or something would come. They would have this lavish lunch buffet. So if you were very quick and you nipped upstairs at about quarter to two, 
to the, where the conference room was, they'd all gone back into their session. And the kitchen people wouldn't have come to clear away the rest of the buffet. Uh, You'd be like, ah, you just nip <laughs> in and like scoop up a load of the whatever they had. That's so and funny. Usually it was just cookies. They had the same cookies, and then and, and sometimes uh, they had these snickerdoodles and chocolate chip cookies or something, and then little corner like triangles of brownie. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that would be, and they'd be like, oh god, I'm gonna eat cookies for lunch again. Okay, and then, <laughs> but it was like supplementing my my sort of uh, grant income. And then every so often we would go out. We had this amazing professor um, that I was a teaching assistant for, Maxine Isaacs, and. Um, she was the most generous lady and she would take us all out for like a really nice meal because um, she just enjoyed having students talking about politics and mm-hmm. she just found it like really enjoyable to sort of have this conversation going around the dinner table so she would take us out like every once a month or whatever for dinner and then we got to go to some like really there was a couple of really nice restaurants in Harvard Square and so on and mm-hmm. that was always a bit more upmarket than my cookie dinner. <laughs> but yeah. Trader Joe's, I have to say, good old Trader Joe's and the free sample station. <laughs> Always enjoy that. <laughs> you should you should have written a guidebook, free samples across America. You could have gone to every Costco, every Trader Joe's. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, you're it's fascinating to hear that you studied po- political science and and then to correlate that back to the recipe that you had me make. Um, but I'm thinking for some reason a lot about class and what you were talking about earlier about you know. Um, the great, the great equalizer of, of you know, the food culture shifting to just normal everyday people and not just the wealthy. But on the other end of that, I mean, are you when you're in? Do you live in London? I didn't even ask you where you live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I live in central London. Yeah, in yeah. central London. But do you still? Do you go? I know. Obviously, you're going to like the Ukrainian places and making this food. But do are you also going to the super high end like Heston Blumenthal kind of restaurants and? And what do you think of all that kind of stuff? Or is that not really your cup of tea? I mean, I've been once or twice. I mean, I sometimes am very fortunate that I know someone who might invite me out for dinner or something like that. I don't have like a mega salary. I mean, don't go into journalism to make loads of money. Um, (laughs) But I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate. I I have, you know, I don't have, I guess I don't have a family to, you know, I just have to support myself. So, you know, it's up to me what I I do with it. But, um, you know, I... I don't drink um, mm. and I'm mostly vegetarian. I do have the odd chicken or something, but mostly vegetarian. So it's, you know, it, it, what I really like is the way that there's a lot more, a lot more exciting sort of vegetarian food available mm-hmm. in all sorts of different restaurants. And the favorite, I have lots of favorites places to go. And mostly I like places that are just really welcoming and comfortable and 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 not trying to be too fancy for its own sake, but just like, cook really nice food and they're just really friendly and that's what i enjoy those are the places i tend to go to do you know where i'm dying i'm dying to go i've had her cookbook forever um margo henderson oh uh, yeah rochelle kitchen rochelle canteen Canteen. yes my my late dad um he was at school in that building in 1925 Mm -hmm. that was his school it was a boys school and um called rochelle school and I'm so glad that like probably my parents last ever visit to London before they got too frail to come and then they, before they and, and then they weren't able to really travel out of the uh, out of Birmingham but they I managed to get get them up there for lunch and oh, um, nice. she, then you just opened it to the public she used to just do some meals for the artists and stuff who worked in that in that it was converted into some various studios um okay. And my, it was so nice being out. And my dad was just like, oh, my God, I couldn't. I said, could you have ever imagined when you were at school here? And it was like a really terrible area in those days, in the 1920s and so on. And it was like lots of, you know, no one would have had a restaurant anyway. But it was like to think that his school is now this fancy place. And he was just like, I would never like like anything further from the reality. That's would so funny. Impossible. Well, I mean, one of the weird things about my podcast, and it's almost impossible to think this really happened, is that before the pandemic, Fergus Henderson came to my apartment and appeared on my podcast. And I think it was because he was here promoting the St. John cookbook and his PR person, like I had written them, but he, I felt like he had like literally no, he's like, where, where am I? What am I doing? And I, and the, and the way that I won him over is that I had Fernet Branca on top of my cabinet and he's like can I have some of that and I was like sure and and I want to they, they are great the Hendersons like they yes. love a party I mean 
I don't know where they get the energy, but like they're just brilliant. And I remember going to, they had their 25th anniversary. There was some big anniversary party. I can't remember mm-hmm. which at St. John. And I live very close. I'm like five minutes from the restaurant. Oh, okay. and I remember going to this party and it's not much good if you're, it was, everything was pork but then yes. they saved me some Eccles cakes they were like don't worry we've got you some dessert and I was like, I was like yeah that's like the worst place for a vegetarian <laughs> so party, ever like, to the <laughs> night like, I was like oh my god I'm quite tired and I'm like you know 20 years younger but yeah no it was, it was they're so you know they're very generous with um with yes. their friends and so on well I went to St John by myself when so I was probably near your apartment with last time I was in London I went there and I just loved how there was something about that that was so unique in terms of like the white paper on the t- I think it was like white paper on the tables and then like just there was like a sophistication to it but sort of like a rustic quality but I on that same trip because as we're talking about class and like money and and food I took I took myself to the river cafe because uh, I read all about it and I and I'd had all the cookbooks and so I was so excited to go there. But that I mean, talk about fancy. I mean, it was so expensive and and I felt pretty self conscious uh, being there alone. But I'm glad. I mean, have you gone? What do you think of the River Cafe? So I've only been when someone, uh, well, actually, when Maxine Isaacs, this professor, and uh-huh. um, she came over to London because she used to come over and go to the theatre a lot. And um, there was me and another student of hers at the time who was also living in London. And she, we, a couple of times when she'd been over, we'd met up with her. And um, so she suggested going to the River Cafe. And then we were like, oh, okay. And then we didn't realise we got there and we were like, oh, my God. And we didn't want to, I mean, she usually picked up the cheque because, you yes. know, she had invited, but we didn't want to assume. So I just was like, oh, I'm only going to get a starter. And, I'll just have, and then it was like this tiny risotto. And I was like, no, yes. I'm, I'm, that's fine. That's all I need. And then I was like, oh, my God, can I have some more bread? <laughs> so it, the second yes. time I went was for a special book dinner that they invited me to when they brought out the River Cafe 30 cookbook, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was amazing. I was like, how am I at this dinner? It was like in the private dining room. I was sitting next to Ruth Rogers and Joe Trevelli, who's the head chef, and I was like, "Wow!" And I remember asking Joe, "They, I, I, I thought well, I'm never going to get this chance again." So I said, "Can we have one of every dessert to the table?" Oh wow, that's ballsy! Yeah. And they brought out all these, and it was the frangipan tart. It was like, it was incredible. So I said to Joe, "I was like, how did you get that frangipan so light? It's amazing." And he said, 30 years experience." <laughs> I was like, "Okay." That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's as as expensive as it was, there was something so uniquely like elegant about how they presented everything just so in a way that felt like it was like a painting, but yet like kind of thrown together too. So I was I was glad that I went there. Actually, my favorite meal that I had to bring the conversation full circle again uh, was an Indian meal. I think it was at Tayabs. Is that a place? T-A-Y-A-B-S. Mm. Um, and I guess that was in East London. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that was inc- that was wild. That was it was so flavorful and so like unlike anything I'd ever had. But I'm curious for you: is there anything in America that you crave that you miss that you would come back to eat? So yeah, I definitely miss proper bagels. I mean, there are a couple of people here now doing pretty good bagels, but mm-hmm. it's not quite the same still as New York. You can't get all the kind of pumpernickel. I really like pumpernickel bagel with white fish. Oh, you know the best bagels are. Get- in- are in LA now. Did you see the New York Times article? Oh, is this courage bagels? Yes. Yes, I know. I I I have been stalking them from afar, but yes. And yes. Whitefish, Acme, mm. um, the that company that makes them, and um, I've been to their factory even and everything. They have like a retail day, but yeah, no, I I I love Whitefish, and you can't get that here either. So really, you can't get like, Whitefish at all. It's a, I, I even researched it at one point. It's like some special breed that's only in North American lakes or something. I mean, no, it's like, I, I don't know. There's maybe something that's similar. I don't even know. Like one of my friends tried to make it. They have a deli and they've made something which is similar. It's like smoked paddock with a mackerel or something. But it's, it's nice, but it's not quite the same. It doesn't have that unique. You're that making really me think of um, spikiness. when I went to Jewish camp, my, my parents sent me to a, a sleepaway Jewish camp and I went fishing. And the counselors asked me what kind of fish I was hoping to catch. And I wasn't making a joke, but I was like, I, ho- I hope I get a gefilte fish. <laughs> and, and then I realized, oh, that's not a fish. Okay. Uh, well, Felicity, this has been, this has flown by. I mean, my God, we, we could just talk for hours. But um, I'm starting this tradition in this new podcast um, where 
I began with, you know, you telling me what you've got to taste, but now I want to know what was the last thing that you tasted that was a, you've got to taste this moment. What was the best thing that you've eaten recently um, in recent memory that you would say, you know, Adam, you've got to taste this. If I, you know, maybe something you cooked, something that you were at, ate at a restaurant, just the best thing that you've had recently. Okay, so I'm going to have another Ukrainian dish because it yes. was, so when I was in, um, on my last day in, in well my last day in Kiev was actually spent running around trying to get my train ticket sorted because there was, a, there was a big missile strike and everything went off oh my goodness um, yeah uh, like all the electricity went down and everything it was quite tricky trying to get myself out of the country but it was people were super helpful but the day before me and the friends I stayed with went to this cafe um uh, which had moved from Kharkiv they had evacuated from Kharkiv and moved to Kiev um, and their food was amazing. It was absolutely delicious. And like I was uh, normally what I the, my favorite dish that I always order everywhere uh, when I see it in Ukraine is uh, sivniki. And um, they're like these little pancakes, which are made out of curd cheese and, and they're sort of fried and then they serve with a fruit compote. But in this cafe, I, I kind of made myself try something else and they had a dish which is like a Jewish Odessan dish I think it's originally from Odessa called forschmack which is a bit like um chopped herring I mean it's the Jewish chopped herring so it's kind of slightly sweet chopped herring and then you get forschmack like s-h-m-u-c-k like F like schmuck so f-o-r f forschmack yeah. okay because you know like s-h-m-a-k I think you spell it a schmack okay anyway, got it yeah it, this one in this cabinet you get dill and like pickled cucumbers an egg and there's this chopped herring and then on some rye bread it was it was incredible it was so delicious and mm. just really fresh and like just like that pickle flavor and so on it was it was great it was really really great so it weaned me off for a moment off my favorite sirniki but then I went back to sirniki the next day because <laughs> it's just like I think they it's just like having cheesecake but for breakfast so it's like the ideal is it like yeah, a pan pancake? It. Like 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 a fried pancake? Sort they're of little thing? sort of discs. Yeah, they look like little puck shapes, um, but they're made out of this curd cheese. And you put a tiny bit of egg uh, flour, maybe a tiny bit of sugar, not too much because it'll burn. Um, Olya has a recipe actually, but um, and then you just fry it uh, until it's sort of crisp on the outside. Mm. Then you serve it with like a usually a sour cherry compote or apricot or something on the side. It so sounds like a, like a like a blintz without the casing. Yeah, kind of like a, I guess like um, you know how nudie are like ravioli mm -hmm. without the pasta. So I guess in that sense, but they're very good. As I say, I always like anything that's like dessert, but for breakfast, and you're allowed yes. to have it for breakfast. Is like that's good for me. I'm, it's I'm fasc it's fascinating, it. fascinating to me that you had such a good meal in the middle of like a a war torn country. I mean. That's kind of inspiring that they're able to do that, that they're able to. I mean, this, yeah, people have generators. So cafes that can manage to get a generator, because obviously if electricity is cut, they're not going to be able to cook. But like even on the morning of the last day, my friends went out to try and find somewhere that was serving coffee because they only had an electric cooker, so they couldn't heat up any water or anything. And uh, there was a cafe that was in a basement, so it was allowed to stay open during, you know, because they had, you know, it was counted as some shelter. And uh, it was quite dark mm -hmm. and they had uh, phone torches and they put candles on the tables and they said, oh, yeah, come in. We've got the full menu. But really sorry, because the water's cut off. We can't make any of the espresso drinks. So we've only got filter coffee. Is that OK? We were like, oh, my God, it's amazing <laughs> that you're even open. And like, right. <laughs> of course, you know, and they were like, yeah, I hope that's all right. And they were apologizing for not being able to do cappuccinos and things. It was amazing. That and they, amazing. You know, they had this full, they were cooking everything on the menu and. They just wanted to keep going because they were like, well, we have, you know, we want to support our staff and, you know, people need to eat and so on. And as I say, a lot of people want to help the armed forces. And so because they know that's the only way that they're going to get rid of this, this threat over them the whole time. So a lot of places will have like a collection box in the in the front anyway. So when you pay, there's like a box for giving to the army or they'll be making food to send to a charity or something and there's this bakery that um my friend maria who is from odessa has been amazing doing incredible fundraising and they're based in odessa and i went to visit them with her and they these three guys who run it make all the bread for free for needy families in the mm. area people who've either either 
been exiled from the occupied areas or they've had to move from cities which are in a dangerous place. And there's a big, a couple of big charities that come and one, one comes and collects it and, and takes loaves to people's houses if they can't leave. And there was a big place where I went, which is a kind of refugee hub and lots of different charities like World Central Kitchen and UNICEF and so on have like a presence there. And these guys at the, the Doe Bakery work with World Central Kitchen. And so they would just turn up every morning with like a big bag of this amazing sourdough. And it was wow. the most delicious bread. And Ilya, who's the, the head uh, baker there, he worked in a three Michelin star kitchen during his time. He did some traveling before he came back to Ukraine. And they set this bakery up initially to supply restaurants with bread. But as soon as the war was declared, they were like, well, we want to just do what we can for people. And they just exist on donations and they, you know, mm. managed to keep going. And they recently, because of the electricity cuts, because there was the Russians bombed the electricity supply there, they couldn't work for like three, four weeks. And they were so frustrated because they were like, people need to eat and we can't cook for them. Unfortunately, now they've managed to raise the money and get a big generator so they can turn on the ovens and the fridge again. So they're, they're really happy that they can get back to work. But wow. people like that, it's just... When you meet them, it's just, and they're, so, you know, they're just regular guys, but they've really stepped up and they, mm -hmm. they just, they said, you know, we're not really army material, but this is our skill. And, and so we can do this for the country and this is, you know, how we're helping. Um, and, you know, it's just, you just think, God, you know, I just want to help yeah. you to do whatever you're doing. And it's, 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 you know, they're just, you know, you can't then turn a bay and say, well, you know, I can't be bothered to help or something. You just really, because right. you see what sacrifices they're making and, you know, they, they never question it. So yeah. I'm curious with your background in, po in political science and having studied this, um, maybe this is your opportunity to win a Nobel prize yourself, but <laughs> how do you, how do you see this? I mean, it's a huge question, but I'm just curious what you'll say. How do you see this all playing out? Well, this is the big unknown and I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, there's so many other pressures on it but it, it's really I mean it, it's kind of depressing but it's hard to see how what the what the decisive factor might be mm -hmm. and you hope that the western support keeps up and it's it's I mean I'm not really allowed to have a political opinion because of work oh, but right um, I don't want to get you in trouble yeah, it's it's really difficult because there's so many people going through just this terrible time and you just feel so sad that mm -hmm you know that so many lives have been lost and that there's all these bereaved families and so on and yeah it, you just hope that something somehow will bring it to an end really quickly i hope so too to well maybe maybe a, maybe a better question to end on would be are there any charities that people who are listening can look up and donate to that you would recommend for this yeah i mean so in ukraine a lot of the charities that, that i really like to support are very locally based because they're, they're very direct and people are just sort of you know they need something they ask for it they get it and they take it straight to where it's needed but i think one of the better charities which is really everywhere and really works hard is the world central kitchen which you may mm -hmm. have heard of oh yeah because it's an american chef um and that they, they have been absolutely like incredible across ukraine like really working very intelligently with local partners and with local suppliers so that they you know they don't just bring stuff in from outside and then leave people dependent on a sort of donation culture but they try and work with farmers and local restaurants local cooks so that they you know they're part of the community um so they're a really good charity um cook for ukraine which olia and uh, Alyssa founded they work with a charity called the legacy of war foundation um, which is also does a lot of very essential work, evacuating people and taking supplies to these villages which have had nothing and there's no shops and things like that. So I think Cook for Ukraine and if you're interested in the food world and, and World Central Kitchen are both charities which are having a very direct impact on the ground yeah. and aren't sort of wasting money in some bureaucracy. And, you, you know, they're very transparent about, you know, where the money's going. So I think That's if you... Great you know that it's going to somewhere that, that's you know immediate and where it's and it's you know where it's acutely needed and also bake for ukraine which my friend maria runs um and they she has been incredible like considering you know it's just one person and some a couple of others that work with her there's like three or four of them and they've raised 
you know, like a hundred thousand pounds to help really? um, a number of bakeries. And, you know, they, they have a, a an Instagram if you search for that and then it links to their donation page and, and also explains a bit more about who they're helping and what they're doing. Um, okay. I'll put links to all that. these. Um, I'll put a link to all these charities underneath the podcast too. So if people want to click, um, well, Felicity, it was so lovely talking to you and I hope I get to talk to you again, maybe in person, if either in America or when I come back and we can go to the river cafe and you can treat us. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> We're just having a starter. <laughs> okay. Just a starter. Okay. Fair. Well, have a wonderful rest of your night and thank you so much again for taking the time to talk. Thank you. It was great fun. And uh, yeah, have a good rest of your day. Okay. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of You've Got to Taste This. If you want the recipe that I made that Felicity sent me for the poppy seed bread, I'm going to include it in my newsletter, which is amateurgourmet.substack.com. And it's free and it comes every Monday. And if you want to see all my cooking and everything on Instagram, I'm amateurgourmet on there as well as Twitter and TikTok. All right. I'll see you back here next week. And let me know if you made this. Tag me in your posts. Bye.